Hey everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, uh, Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed? Hi. What's doing? Um, I'm I'm feeling smug. You are? You're feeling smug? Well, that's unlike, that's unlike you, Ed. Uh, it is. It's true. Um, <laughs> the, that was... That was, uh, I guess, what might be called sarcasm. Oh, I, I think you're being unfair to me. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. The disposition to smugness is certainly omnipresent in me, but uh, usually my tendency to self-loathing cancels it out. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. So why are you feeling smug? Because it's Thursday evening, and I've finished my newsletter. You, you finished your newsletter? I finished my newsletter. Ed, it is... Four o'clock your time on Thursday. You usually finish your newsletter. So if you're a listener to this podcast, but you don't otherwise hang out in the Pillar universe, uh, the Pillar sends out newsletters that can arrive in your inbox. You can subscribe to them at PillarCatholic.com, and I write one that goes out on Tuesday morning, and Ed, write one, Ed writes one that goes out on Friday morning. And Ed, usually you are writing your newsletter between midnight and 4 a.m. on Thursday night into Friday, like 12 hours from now. Yeah, I'm, I am fully half a day ahead of schedule i'm i'm very very excited how how did that how did that happen uh i got i got uh, it was a perfect storm i um there were a couple of things first of all i i happened to know uh the what the 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 other story we're publishing today as we record yesterday as this podcast is broadcast <laughs> so rather than having to wait for the end of you the happen day, to know what 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 the, what what else we were publishing? Because normally, oh, like you, you know, knew this... what we were because because part of the newsletter is a links roundup, and you knew what you basically have an idea all the things that are going to come out between now and uh, Friday morning when your newsletter comes out. That's right. So I'm I'm no longer. I mean, often one of the big problems is I have to wait for the close of play to yeah. be able to start writing my newsletter because I don't know necessarily what all we're going to be writing about on mm-hmm. Thursday afternoon evening, and in this case, I do or did, depending on whether I'm speaking in the fictitious present tense of friday or the actual present tense of thursday afternoon Isn't let's it? let's so there's let's that just do away with the kfob and say that the, for us it is thursday afternoon it is thursday afternoon anyway so there's that also i i sort of i had a half an hour before um starting something else and i thought i'd you know sort of do the quick links roundup section at the beginning just to get it started because i didn't want to have to write late tonight because i have to get up very early in the morning for a video call with rome um so i you know, I I didn't want to be operating on you know less than five hours sleep if I didn't have to. So yeah, I, I tried to get a jump on, and it just you know it happened. I I figured out what I wanted to say, and it all just kind of came out in one fell swoop. And I'm you know barring barring the unexpected and or you telling me that I'm crazy for sending it out. Uh, I I think I'm actually ahead of the game for a minute. That's that's impressive. I um. I like so I you know we've only been writing you and I have only been writing newsletters now for well I guess January February March April, for four months um, I really like it I really like writing newsletters but it is um, for some reason that I can never quite it quite explain certainly not explain to my wife when she sort of wonders about my process it, it's a hard thing for me to do kind of ahead of time and sometimes I think you know I should just have a a running document in which I kind of just put things that, you know, may, put put things that I want to add into the newsletter throughout the course of the week and things like that. But it just does not, it's the kind of thing that I can, I, I found that I can only do against a deadline. So I'm, I'm impressed. This is never going to become a weekly habit for me, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take the W where I can. 
Fair enough. Good enough. Well done. Well, Ed, there's something that I, by the way, if you're interested in reading the uh, the, the the early the early written newsletter uh, of Ed or receiving in your inbox twice a week a newsletter from Ed and I, newsletters from Ed and I, you can go to www.pillarcatholic.com and subscribe to get newsletters in your inbox twice a week, which include uh, not only links to uh, our journalistic work at The Pillar, but also um, pithy and witty and, dare I say, clever observations from Ed and I about the state of the world and those who live in it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the reason why I, I don't know about you, but why I never end up being able to write hardly ever before midnight on a, a Thursday night, Friday morning is because I just, it's often a sort of stream of consciousness and I, I don't often know what it is that is going to be on my mind until the minute arrives. Well, part uh, of the, part of the reason why I struggle to write it and I'm, I'm not trying to um, blow smoke in your direction here. I, I don't even like to blow smoke in your direction, but Part of the reason why I sometimes struggle to write the newsletter is because I think you keep upping your newsletter game. You keep writing great newsletters that I really like. They're interesting. They're insightful. They're often funny. And I really like them. And so when you up your game, I want to up my game. And, you know, sometimes I just don't feel like I I bring the heat uh, or or I know kind of what heat to bring, you know, or whatever. You know, it's just you got to be in the zone. Uh, well, that's, that's kind of you to say. I, I, I suffer from sort of... Uh, a different um, kind of <laughs> comparison when I read yours, which is I often find yours to be thoughtful, reflective, mature, sober, often <laughs> informed by the faith. And and I find that I, I tend to sort of give in to my darker angels more as I write as a result because I realize I'm not going to compete with you on those fields. And so I just get angrier. <laughs> well, it's funny because I do, you know, I mean, I, I think we do each have a, a different, we often have a different lane that we, we occupy, although you sometimes veer into mine and I sometimes veer into yours and, and sometimes with good results. But, um, but, but I, maybe that's what, I don't know. Now we're kind of talking about ourselves for 10 minutes. So forget it. Anyway, those are our newsletters. You guys can read them if you want. They're, they're fine. So JD, as I mentioned, uh, the reason I could start writing my newsletter early this week is because we were going to report some news on Thursday evening. That's a good transition. But um, I, before we get there, Ed, I, I want to do something that I hope will be okay with you. I don't know if it's the kind of thing you're going to be okay with or not. But Ed, do you mind? I want to take a minute to talk about baseball. Uh, I, I'm amenable. In fact, I, I wrote about baseball in my newsletter this week. Well, I have not read your newsletter, but I I want to talk about the Brewers. Well, no, I, I want to talk about baseball. And um, I, I guess I want to start by talking about the Milwaukee Brewers and the Miami Marlins and their Wednesday afternoon day game. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't. Really? What what happened? What, I, I mean, I know the... I guess I just am a bigger fan. You know, I know you're kind of... I know you're a fan, like, well, a, you the, know... I know a, the Marlins beat the Brewers, but I mean, I, I keep an eye on it because obviously the Brewers are kicking the Cubs butt up and down the field every time they play this season. Um, uh, okay. Wait, I, are you I, talking about yeah. the obstruction call? Is that what this is? Okay, so it's the top of the second, right? Two outs. Okay. Top of the second, two outs, second baseman uh, at the plate. So a lot of twos going on. Top of the second, two outs, Miami second baseman... Uh, I can't remember his first name. Diaz is uh, is at the plate. He hits a, a a little dink of a roller down the first baseline, just a little, you know, a little first baseline ground ground ball. And uh, so, what do you do? What happens if a ground ball is heading down the first baseline, and who feels it? 
uh, if it's heading down the first baseline, the first baseman feels it. No, the first baseman keeps his foot on the bag and oh, pitcher running out to the, get it. Is that the what pitcher you're runs out to get it and tosses it to the first baseman so he can get get the out. Right. Right. First baseman comes off the bag to feel the play. You know, down the first baseman, then who's going to you know down the first baseline? Who's going to cover first base? Blah blah blah. So anyway, so first baseman stays where he is. Pitcher goes and just picks up the ball and tosses it to the first base. Right. Okay. That's what happens. Uh, Milwaukee pitcher comes off the mound, scoops up the ball, um, starts to toss it to first, and you know he's doing what is often the case. He scoops up the ball along the first baseline and sort of jots down the first baseline as he tosses it to the first baseman. Right out, easy out. Okay. In fact, an out is called. But then they walk it back. And the umpires say that Zach Godley, the Milwaukee pitcher, uh, interfered with Diaz as he ran down the first baseline um, by virtue of essentially being in proximity of the first baseline, even while they weren't in physical contact with each other or anything else. And it was an extremely routine play. It was outlandish, absurd, outrageous, unbelievable. I, I... After the game, the umpire said that um, he thinks Diaz had to kind of move out of the pitcher's way while, while running to first base, and so it was clear-cut obstruction, uh, even without contact, even in an extremely routine play. But I just, I just couldn't believe it. I I can't say I'm surprised. Once you have the ridiculous and unnatural subversion of authority introduced into the game, like instant replay, being able to appeal ump's calls, things like that, you're going to get these sort of ridiculous results. Um, I mean, I think that anyone who has the temerity to second guess uh, the call of, of an umpire should be immediately ejected from the game. And, you know, sometimes you get bad calls and that's part of the game and the umpires suffer their own consequences as a result of that. But, uh, you know... But the MLB is a farce these days, JD. Well, That's I'm, I'm, I mean, it just was a, such a clearly bad call. And I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, umpires now suffer from the fact that they're clearly bad call. First of all, exists in an era when you have an immediate instant replay, and second of all, when that immediate instant replay can be, rep, you know, can be disseminated to the whole world, you know, before, before the guy's back in the dugout vis-a-vis various kinds of social media. And so, you know, I, I think an umpire is even entitled to make a bad call every once in a while. But Sure, but that's why you don't have... The ability to appeal is you just accept that those things happen in the heat of the moment and that's part of the ebb and flow of the game. And actually, there's an entire philosophy behind this. Um, and when I say philosophy, I don't mean to sort of, you know. Well, that's what uh, I was going to say before you say the philosophy, because maybe you can explain to me why this is not the case. Okay. But it, it seems to me that there ought to be some, it, it, it has to stop somewhere, right? You can't be making sort of in game appeals to the commissioner of baseball. Um, but that's what they do. They call but, Madison Avenue. Well, but there must be some mechanism of hierarchical recourse, or if not, oughtn't there be some mechanism of hierarchical recourse against, no. you know, in, 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 in this universe? No. Why? No, there shouldn't. Because that because life isn't fair. Yeah, but Ed, like, you, don't you believe, like me, don't you believe in the protection of rights a little bit? I mean, it just like, it struck me that the batsman's rights were, you know, completely obviated by this bad call. And while I think the umpire oughtn't be penalized for it, one would wish that there would be some means of recourse or recompense. No. Um, bad calls will occasionally happen. I think they, the chances of bad calls happening is increased exponentially when um, game officials are aware that they can be appealed in the moment. And I think this encourages them to second-guess themselves and reverse themselves under pressure or by on the strength of reaction from one team or another. And I think all of that's bad. Uh, you know, the, and again, these sort of ridiculous calls are getting more and more common. I actually, the last time I wrote about baseball in my newsletter was when the the cheating dirtbag New York Mets 
um, flooded the field for a ninth inning walk-off after one of their outfielders uh, lent in and deliberately got hit by a pitch that was a strike so that he could get an intentional yeah, yeah, walk yeah, I remember on seeing a two-strike yeah. count. Um, and, you know, they basically treated it like they just won game seven. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> it, was a, it was a bad call by the umpire. It was ridiculous. And there's, you know, it, it's what it is. You get these things. But they're, they're, for me, baseball is a... So there's a, there's a philosopher called um, Alvin Noe who, who wrote a, a book. It's really a collection of essays uh, called Infinite Baseball. And, I mean, he is, a, he is an academic philosopher by, by trade. He's not a he's not mm-hmm. a sports writer yeah, dabbling yeah. in philosophy. He's a he's a philosopher who understands the soul of baseball, mm-hmm. and he in his book makes the argument. I wouldn't even call it an argument. It's it's an observation. What he's what he's done is he's um, articulated a very fundamental truth about the game as it as it has always been played and as it should be played, which is that baseball is the most subjective sport uh, of any other. That it's not just a question of what about Dressage? Is he familiar with Dressage? Uh, no, um, stop. But that it's not just a question of bat on ball. Rhythmic gymnastics. <sighs> Rhythm, don't get me started on rhythmic gymnastics. That is pornography. <laughs> that is pornography. That is not a sport. You, that might say more about your you. That well, that okay. Go ahead, baseball. You know how rhythmic. You know how I didn't know, know that you. I didn't know. Fake? I didn't know, you know how, how you know it's a fake sport. JD, I'm, I'm a little scandalized actually no... by how interested you are in rhythms. The reason you know rhythmic gymnastics is not a sport is because there is no member of an Olympic rhythmic gymnastics team who wouldn't cut their own foot off for a spot (laughs) on the actual gymnastics team. (laughs) This is true. This is true. Which, by the way, we should talk about Olympic three-on-three basketball in a minute. But anyhow, this is true. Okay. Anyway. but So anyway, Noe's point is that baseball is not just about the empirical facts of the game, Um, you know, runs scored batters advanced, bat on ball, that sort of thing. But it's about the assignation of credit or blame, that whether a run is earned or not, whether mm-hmm, a ball, mm-hmm. whether a pitch is a ball or a strike, that all of these things are subjective calls that depend on the live viewing of the game as it's in progress. Oh, an unforced error or forced what, error or something like this. Exactly, all these things. Um, and and that this together is what makes baseball different than, for example, basketball, because in baseball, the the act of watching the game is part of the game itself being played. That you can't play baseball without a crowd. You can't play baseball without baseball being watched. That it's not possible to separate spectator from participant. And that this sort of philosophical symbiosis is what creates a real soul for the game. And so when you bring in things like robot umpires or instant replay or appeal or all that stuff, it just destroys everything. It's terrible. I hate it. I hate it all. And this is, you know, this is what I was writing about in my newsletter this week. But anyway, so thank you for giving me a moment to soapbox about that. I had missed, in fact, this ridiculous obstruction call, which I'm now looking at now and does seem absurd. Um, All I can say is, you know, the Marlins and the Brewers. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally fair and valid. I mean, yeah, that is a totally fair and valid response as well. I, you know, far be it for me to. But I just was, I mean, it it just struck me as being particularly galling, perhaps because I wasn't. Writing a newsletter, and so I watched it a couple of times. Um, but uh, that is uh, that's baseball, I guess, huh? It used to be. <laughs> so, um, is there any I, you you fre- you so frequently, Ed? You, you so frequently kind of lament and excoriate Major League Baseball and its control over the game and those kinds of things, and 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 you you used to. Um, 
I've known you for a little while now, and you used to champion sort of independent league, minor league baseball, but you, you no longer can because independent minor league baseball leagues have now, independent minor league baseball leagues have now set up contracts with MLB where they've become test labs for various kinds of um, for the rule changes. ideas. Right. So, for M- example... MLB now use the independent leagues in exchange for money uh, to test the ideas that are so terrible, so awful, so stomach-churning, nauseatingly bad that they wouldn't even dare try and put it into their own minor league system. Yeah. So, for example, I think I sent you a link the other day to um, a, an independent league of minor league baseball that is going to start replacing extra innings with a home run derby. So if, in other words, if the game is tied at the end of the game, you know, if the score is tied at the end of the game, then rather than play uh, free baseball, which is the ordinary course of things, the uh, the teams will instead have a home run derby, which is just, you know, I've said before that I think home run derby in itself would be a winning sport that many people would be uh, interested in. And, and, and I've said before that I myself would head out to the stadium to watch um, home run der- derbies all by themselves if it was sort of a traveling league, you know, of some of the best home run hitters in history, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to replace free baseball with home run derby seems just ridiculous, no? Yes. This is, in fact, what I wrote about in my newsletter this week. And also the plans, uh, this is the Pioneer League that uh, yeah, yeah. Who have been the latest to take the MLB's 30 pieces of silver. Um, <laughs> they, they're also having basically designated pinch hitters for, you know, so you can, you can pinch hit for a fielder, uh, but then send him back out. To play defense, I mean, it's just it's yeah, yeah. so wrong. Everything so is so wrong. Where, where I was going to go with this, where I was going to go with this is, is there anywhere where baseball is being played in a way that it remains kind of true? So there are these things that I've always been interested in, but are but are you know gimmicky by by definition. So for example, historical baseball leagues here in Colorado, there is the Colorado Historical Baseball League, and I don't remember whether they play by the sixty-two missile or the pre fifty-five, but you know they're they're playing by an old rule book. And, you know, wearing old uniforms and that kind of thing. Um, they have special gloves and shoes. And, um, okay, yeah. So they're, they're, they're playing the extraordinary form of baseball. But is there anywhere um, that is playing baseball in a way that has become less experimental with some of these things that I know are particularly egregious to you? Like, is, is Japanese baseball retain more, uh, more uh, honor in the game or... I know the South Korean Baseball League is big. Where, where's where's the best baseball being played right now, Ed? Maybe college. Uh, I maybe college. I I do. There's um. I I often uh when I have time, which hasn't been as much this spring, uh, and it's been difficult for for other. Well, we just started reasons, a thing. Uh, is um, I I would go to the Catholic University of America's D three baseball games. Which are which are often quite fun. Um, there's a sand lot at the bottom of my road. You can see some decent softball there. They don't seem to have any robot umpires or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but in terms of an actual professional league, certainly no. I mean, I all I want to do is watch good live baseball. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I've signed up. I used to be a season ticket holder for the local independent league team, which was the Maryland Blue Crabs in the Atlantic League. But you know, last season they took the MLB's money for to try out robot umpires. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I've got tickets this season to my local minor league affiliated team because it's 15 minutes from my house. Um, and, and I can't I can't yet bring myself to not watch live yeah, baseball. Yeah, yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I have not, for the last two years, bought the MLB's blackout ridden, riddled, um, uh, you know, TV package. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I refuse to pay for TV baseball because TV baseball is ruining the game. I mean, that's what all of these stupid rule changes are about. It's about the MLB trying to um, 
get more people to watch baseball on TV while paradoxically making the game unwatchable in the process, mm-hmm. which, you know, drives me absolutely spare. And I cannot believe you've let me talk about baseball for this long. Well, I'm being nice. Okay, but we do have to move on. And it was actually you, you were steering the conversation, and I'm going to let you keep doing it. What is it, Ed? There was some big news this morning that is um, out of the Holy See. The big news in the from the Vatican Press Office this morning, uh, a new motu proprio, uh, a new sort of a motu proprio is a document, uh, usually legal in character, that is issued by the Pope, sort of of, of his own authority and according to his own judgment. Uh, a new motu proprio was issued, making some new financial policies for the offices of the Roman Curia. Yeah. And uh, I I think this is very interesting and and also very important and also related to the things that you and I have been working on sort of relentlessly for the past few years. So maybe you want to sort of talk about what these new rules are. And th- and they really came out of nowhere. They were a big surprise. We, I was surprised that we hadn't heard about them before they came out. Um, but some big new rule changes came out that are not insignificant. Not at all. And they are very much sort of uh, in, 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 the, in the phrasing of law and order, ripped from the headlines. <laughs> um, because which, they seem to be responses to things that have been in the news just very, very recently, things that we've been covering and, and others even too. Even this week. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it brings in a number of things. First of all, uh, the thing that most people noted was the end to so-called bustarella culture, which is um, the 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 not at all venerable but nevertheless pervasive uh, tradition of gift giving of large sums of cash, uh, which is something that has been done for senior prelates in the Roman Curia for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, most notably, it was it was discussed in the wake of the McCarrick scandal, although this far predated McCarrick and at least from everything I've heard, certainly carried on after McCarrick, uh, even after McCarrick was sort of publicly brought down. So they, you know, um, senior senior figures in the Curia are no longer allowed to solicit or accept gifts of value greater than 40 euros, um, which is quite something that is going to really ruin Christmas for quite a few people. And so that's not an uncommon policy, like for, for public servants, people who work in government. Um, it's not an uncommon policy, like... At some, at some companies, you couldn't receive a gift from a vendor or a potential vendor for more than $40, things like that. But for the Holy See, uh, for the Roman Curia, it's a huge change. And you think about like Cardinal Kevin Farrell, for example, who became a, who, who when he went to Rome ha- was given an apartment in a, which was in very bad shape. And he got very large gifts from some American cardinals, including Cardinal McCarrick, to basically refurbish that. And that kind of puts a stop to this sort of thing. It does. It brings the Vatican, at least in this way, sort of broadly in line with the kind of regulations that you'd see governing sort of biggest vegetable judging competitions at a county (laughs) fair. But I mean, progress is progress. We'll take it where we can get it. Um, Uh That's the sort of headline reform that a lot of people focused on. But far more interesting for me uh, is is the basically a, a new register of declarations of interest by all senior curial officials who have anything to do with money in their departments where they have to declare all of their own financial holdings um, they're forbidden from having any kind of financial interest in things that can touch uh, Vatican City or um, curial contracts or things of that nature also they're forbidden from having any kind of uh, financial holdings or interests or deposits or any sort of business dealings in countries designated as you know possible tax or money laundering havens by the Vatican's own financial watchdog or by international standards that's huge um, and would exclude most of the current Vatican um, yeah yeah crew who are under the spotlight for the for the shenanigans of the secretary of state 
Um, they, you know, they, they have to make these self-declarations when they take office. They have to renew them every two years. The Secretary of the Economy now has uh, the power to investigate uh, sua sponte mm-hmm. if it thinks that there's any reason to believe that these declarations might have been falsified or not include things. Um, it makes pointed reference to uh, curial officials uh, having financial stakes or um, deposits or investments or whatever, even being held for them by family members, which is hard to interpret in any way other than as a pointed nod at Cardinal, quote-unquote, Angelo Becciu, uh, who's faced some pretty strict questions about his family's business dealings. Yeah, moved some contracts to, to companies owned by his brother, which have a whole bunch of other issues, legal issues as well. Yeah, um, and uh, there's also... <laughs> There's also a, a one-line provision saying all um, investments and shareholdings and things, uh, any business dealings have to be in line and cannot go against Catholic social doctrine. Which is a big change for the Holy See and which is something that was, uh, which was, which came out of like news in Italy that, that, that we picked up uh, just this week. It, it was, yeah, Monday. Monday, I mean, right, exactly. Yeah, the, the, mm-hmm. That's how sort of ripped from the headlines these new regulations <laughs> are because uh, Libero Malone, uh, the the first and uh, former auditor general of the Vatican, uh, sort of broke cover. He's not a man who's who's said much in public since he was forced out of his role in 2017. Broke cover to basically confirm that APSA, the Holy See's sort of sovereign wealth manager and central bank, had for some years had millions of euros worth of uh, shares in some pharmaceutical companies that produce inter alia the morning after pill effectively um we we thought this was bad uh Mm -hmm. and didn't look good for the holy see Mm -hmm. it it does appear that the maloney sort of flagged these investments uh at the time when they were they were sort of sold out of and uh it, it looks to me uh and we talked to um we talked to some people, including a, a former senior official at the Secretariat for the Economy who was there sort of during the, the Maloney-Pell years, mm-hmm. uh, sort of 2017 and previous, who said that this was a this was initially a top priority, like a, a, a top three priority for Vatican financial reform when Pope Francis was elected, was having a, a sort of ethical investment policy across the whole of uh, Vatican institutions and departments, and that basically they were not just stymied in this, but, you know, looked at like they were sort of crazy children for suggesting that the the church's social teaching should be a standard to which they held themselves in trying to make a buck. Which is standard for bishops' conferences who who, who, who hold themselves to these kind of investment policies. and It's standard uh, for many pension funds and right. hedge funds at this point. Not, not to, have to have hold themselves to policy. Catholic social teaching, Catholic social teaching no, to have, have a policy guiding sort of the ethical norms of investing, to yeah. be sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is right. corporate social responsibility 101. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at least a, a, by the time uh, Pella Malone left in 2017, they didn't have one. Now, Nuncio Galatino, uh, who's the bishop who is currently the president of APSA, r- responded to this story about the, the shares in these pharmaceutical companies saying, look, I wasn't here when that happened. I only got here in 2018. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, we we do have an ethical investment policy. And he was asked, where is it? And he pointed to a document of the Italian Bishops Conference, which he used to be general secretary of. So it, it was unclear to me, at least at that time, that uh, the Holy See actually did have an ethical investment policy written down somewhere rather than just being able to point to other places like bishops conferences, which, as you say, have these as a matter of course. 
Uh, but they've got one now. It's written in the law. Yeah. And uh, assuming, as it seems likely it is, this was an addition to this law in, in response to news coverage this week. That is, um, that's pretty fast work by the yeah, Pope. Yeah, it really is. And yeah. uh, I'm, I'm very impressed. Now, it, what will have to come next is sort of the development of that po- of that policy. And one suspects that, that the Holy See will probably start actually with the policy unethical investing of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, because I've noticed just in kind of looking around the past few days that there are a number of other bishops' conferences who sort of um, make reference to the U.S. Bishops' Conference in their own policies or even say we'll follow the U.S. Bishops' Conference. So I suspect the Holy See will start there, although they may, you know, they may, they probably, although they probably won't want to say that they have started there. I do not imagine that <laughs> the Holy See, as currently staffed, is likely to publicly credit the Church in the United States on any matter touching business, money, or ethics, that that <laughs> I, I don't I don't see that being where they're going to be willing to sort of give credit. But you know, we'll see what happens. Either way, progress is progress, and I think it's great, and I'm very excited. Well, about you know this. what? It is a good thing. It's it's interesting because again, it's it's <laughs> it's a good thing to see these kinds of standards being developed. Um, you know, again, an ethical investment policy was being called for by Cardinal Pell uh, seven years ago. Um, some of these conflict of interest policies have been sort of standard fare for people in large institutions, governmental or non. Or uh, small for, institutions of yeah, or no small impact institutions size for or means. Right. It's uh, just for, normal. For decades, right? I mean, so some of these things are very ordinary um, from our perspective. And so, I, you know, I I have seen people whose, whose reaction has been, you know, well, um, they should have already had this, they should have already had this, they should have already had this. But one, again, I know we've talked about this a lot, but sort of one can't measure reform against what ought to have been, but against what was. And, uh, you know, the, the financial sort of um, structures of the whole, of the Roman Curia were, you know, hardly past double entry ledger book accounting. And uh, and so to begin to build these things, one must what do you mean, sort of hardly start... passed. They weren't even there. That <laughs> right. was another Pell reform that was spiked by the Secretary of State under Cardinal Becciu. Really? Yeah. No, they oh, just I... tried to have double ledger reporting, and they went absolutely berserk and said, "How how dare you suggest that we'd have multiple pairs of eyes on massive expenditures or investments? If we did that, we might have some jumped up, you know, clerk of a cardinal trying to tell an archbishop that he's not allowed to take out a two hundred million euro loan to you know go wild in the London property market." Oh no! I just meant I just meant double entry bookkeeping, where you are identifying things as like debits and credits. So basically, the kind of midi the, the kind of bookkeeping invented in Italy in the, in the medieval Yeah, they era. weren't doing that. They were yeah. doing that in the Secretary of State no, in twenty fourteen. I'm, I'm sure they. Okay, well, anyway, neither here nor there. My point is, um, they have gone from a place of being sort of very unsophisticated about uh, about accounting um, to 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 getting a little bit more sophisticated about some of the possibilities for um, um, errors, shall we say, or abuses, um, you know, or to be taken advantage of in various ways, and uh, and that's a good thing. Now, the the the, the Vatican, the the Roman Curia. Faces very serious cash crunches, as we know, and those cash crunches are not immediately going away, and there are not clear sort of indications of how even they might begin to go away, you know, other than the Vatican Museum's reopening, which gives them, like, ticket money um, to, to operate the universal governance of the church. But if the resources of the church are going to be even more scant, perhaps it is um, not not more important sort of objectively, but perhaps it is all the more critical that um, these reforms 
be inaugurated into place. So, you know, I, from my perspective, it's a good thing, and I'd rather look at it from going from what was to what is than what should be. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not at all interested in sort of beating the drum and saying this should have been done 20 years ago or, you know, it, Cardinal Pell should have been allowed to do this seven years ago or five years ago. It, it doesn't matter. The point is, you know, it was Cardinal Pell who said um, after Cardinal Becci was fired that Pope Francis plays a long game in financial reform in the Curia and he's to be commended. And right. yeah, he is. This is, th- these are rules that have been needed. They've been needed for a long time. They're rules that didn't exist and they exist now and they only exist now for well, at heart, only one reason, which is because Pope Francis said they're going to be there. And that's good. And they provide a baseline to raise other questions. So, you know, there's there are ongoing legitimate... Well, so this was something that's interesting, J.D. Is this was said to me by a friend um, this morning when I was flipping through this and talking about it. Is They said, this is never going to end envelope culture. Like, there's no way. Like, you, can't, you can't just have this and expect it yeah. to go away overnight. And I said, yeah, but this is like, you're an American citizen, so you've never i assume filled in a sort of u.s customs landing card um, i don't know i mean i just wherever i go in the i'm a u.s citizen wherever i go in the world i just do what i do yeah uh anyway <laughs> i have i know it's filled... not the same for the english i mean it used to be that way the sun never used to set on your empire but now that's us uh well there's a couple of parenthetical points i wish to make technically the sun <laughs> still never sets on um the 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 British Empire? The, uh, well, yeah, what's left of it? I mean, because if you take into mind uh, the British Indian Ocean Territory, uh, the Pitcairn Islands, uh, the Falklands, the um, British Virgin Islands, places like that, I mean, it's still true. Uh, but what it's, with regard to that, I have long wished... Uh, okay, so I read the with some regularity, not like every week or anything, but with some regularity, I read the newspaper of the Pitcairn Islands, and I follow do them. Do you really? Yeah, uh, I... It, <laughs> They were the subject of a fascinating legal case a few years ago. I don't know if you came across. I mean, I presume you, if you're reading Pitcairn News, you must. I have. I do. I I have, and I do. And I mean, it was a grisly yes. sex abuse trial. But what was interesting about it was because it is a, such a closely held crown dependency that the the court of appeal for it was the Privy Council. And, mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, which is yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we could okay. talk about the Pitcairn Islands all day. JD, I really. But... I am not getting around when I say I really could because it's a place where I think I would. I've thought about this long and hard. I, I think I would thrive there. I think that basically I think I'd be king of the Pitcairns very quickly. Uh, or, 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 my or, understanding even that the crew of the Bounty basically ended up there thinking more or less the same thing. Even more than that. You know another place where I'd really like to live? Are, are you familiar with Tristan da Cunha? Yes. That's a, I mean, I'm not a, familiar with it. I, I, I could get within a thousand yeah, miles of it. Little island map. in the South Atlantic, a British yeah. territory. It's another place where I've long thought I'd like living. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. It's beautiful. Well, I I believe you. I mean, there's there are all sorts of wonderful little um, postage stamps on the map that I would love to go and visit one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, the point I was going to make is uh, I, I haven't seen a U.S. landing form recently, but at least it, it always used to be the case that one of the questions they would ask for a nationals landing uh, is, is for them to declare whether or not they were uh, members of the Nazi party or whether they had participated in any way in the Holocaust during the Second World War. Hmm. Um and people often would sort of scoff at this as you'd, you'd see them on airplanes sort of going, what, if I was a Nazi war criminal, I'm going to take, oh, yes, I was. Right, 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 you know? right. But mm-hmm. that's not why it's on the form. You have it on the form so that when they take no and then you find them later, you can prosecute them for it. Right. That's the reason you ban boosterella culture is not because this is both a wave of the pen going to exterminate the practice, but it now means that when you catch someone doing it, you've got something to prosecute them with. Yeah, I think that's one. I think that is true. I think it is one of the reasons. 
The other reason is that um, culture doesn't always follow law and law doesn't always follow culture. They have a, you know, a complicated relationship of interrelationship. Um, but law Surely can... Surely not. You change the heart, you change the law, J.D., and instantly you change the heart <laughs> of all the subjects of the law. I mean, this is well established. I have been told that. I have been told that by certain figures with whom I vehemently disagree. But it is nevertheless true, you know, while that's not true, it is nevertheless true that law does have a formative element and that there is a way in which... Now, uh, uh, there is a way in which a law that ha- that that is respected and regarded as significant by a- enough people can be formative on the disposition of all people. Now, a law which everyone thinks is sort of a joke or not legitimate or something like that arguably is worse, right? Because it, 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 not only the, that particular issue is not addressed by law, but arguably people sort of grow in cynicism about the law and a greater disposition to sort of exempt themselves from laws, which they don't agree with if there are a great many laws in the books, which no one pays attention to. But you create if, a nation of scoff laws. You do. You create a nation of scoff laws if you have, if, if you have enough laws that no one thinks binds them. Um, on the other side of the coin, you know, you don't, as you say, sort of immediately create a nation of saints by making laws. Um, however, if if you have enough, if you have laws that enough people regard as legitimate, they can indeed be formative, and um, and so there is both um, that that sort of m- mechanism of accountability that you mentioned, but also the formative possibility. And and I would just say, you know, that that's the kind of thing that takes a little bit more time. Um, but one must begin somewhere, and you, you can see the way in which the the Charter for the Protection of Rights of Young People and um, and the essential norms that go along with it are are uh, in other words the USCCB and U.S. Bishops Conference laws about uh, laws and instruction about um, child and youth protection. I, I, I myself as a candidate have a lot of quibbles with those laws, and I know Ed, you do too. Um, but I don't think anyone can deny that for the most part they have had a cultural impact. I think of sort of attenuating people to um, being aware of the kinds of situations that can be problematic, which which sure. could in this case be true as well. It could. Um, I, again, I, my my delight uh, at the passage of this law by the Pope is mostly rooted in you know sort of being able to peg almost paragraph by paragraph. Also, <laughs> this is the person whom that's written for. You know, we talked about family members holding financial stakes for you, and how that seems to be linked to. Cardinal Becciu, or at least could be interpreted that way. Um, there was another line about you know no one involved in Vatican finances can have personal stakes in sort of you know blacklist um, financial territories. And I thought, oh, as I recall, Enrico Crasso has a holding company in the right. Dominican Republic uh, that we reported on some time ago. And then you know I saw another one about you know you can't have conflicts of interest and you know stakes in companies people advising the Vatican and stuff. I thought, oh well, that would seem to cover Fabrizio Terabasi being a director of Gianluigi Torsi's company right. in the middle of all of that flooded property deal. And I, the self disclosure about are you the subject to any criminal investigations or charges, uh, or have you benefited from any sort of pardons or other plea deals in foreign jurisdictions for financial crimes? I thought, well, that would cover Gianluigi Torsi nicely, who's been under investigation by Italian authorities for various crimes for years now. Um, you know, you can sort of construct the whole rogues gallery of uh, the people that we've been reporting on for the last three years, sort of point by point through the provisions of this new law, which is, you know, as I say, this is good news. This is a good thing. This is a very good thing. I, I um, think it is. I, I think it is. It's not. Um, it is it's directly res- fix everything. No, overnight. yeah. I'm not being Pollyannish about this. No, and I don't. You know, we've seen other laws passed by the Pope, which are very strongly worded and have clear applicability, Comunio Madre Moller Vole, for example, um, which then sort of turn out to be, at least in my opinion, relatively dead letters over the Mm -hmm. course of the next few years. But 
you know, again, from, from where I'm sitting right now and from the information we have, which is we've had years of reporting on complicated Vatican financial scandals touching all kinds of people in different departments. And now we have a law that seems to respond to all of those things point by point. And that's progress. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I, I agree. Some I'll note that some of it requires it's kind of some of it is sort of like um, uh, <laughs> law passed in the United, by legislatures in the United States, which is to say, some of it some of it requires a thorough sort of administrative component, second to the passage of legislation. So, in other words, now what has to happen is the actual development of these investment policies, the actual mechanism for overseeing and enforcing these things, an investigative division actually being formed at the Secretariat for the Economy, which I know, and I I know, and and listen, we're, we're we work together in this. We sort of are committed to working together. But I know that as soon as you read that the Secretariat of Economy was going to have investigative powers, you sent your resume over there, and you know I get it. More 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 power to you. I did um, no such thing. They have my number. If they want to call me, <laughs> they're welcome to anytime. That would be in a certain way. And again, I love doing this with you, so I hope you don't get it. But in a certain way, that would be your, probably as close to your dream job as you could get. I'd only want to do it for a year or two, but it would be, it would be a fun tour. Yeah. Well, again, I, I, hope, I hope you won't get that tour, but, uh, but if you do, <laughs> I think I'm far more likely to be invited to attend a Vatican court than I am to be offered a job, <laughs> but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, but I know that would be your thing. Okay, so anyway, so it's a good stuff and all of that. Um, I want to talk now where uh, – yeah, I, I want to talk now for just a minute about, um, about uh, bishops, politicians, and communion. And uh, and I know that you are getting a little bit tired of talking about bishops, politicians, and Holy Communion, and I suspect back in the news this week, you probably are getting tired of listening about it. But I, I do just want to clarify something because um, there was a, a a news report from the Associated Press this week that said that the USCCB is going to um, uh, vote on the possibility of drafting a document on uh, the reception of Holy Communion by pro-abortion politicians or other people who are obstinately perseverant in manifest grave sin. And um, and if you read the pillar, or listen to the pillar, you already knew that news because we started talking. We started talking about the, that vote when we reported in early March, so that's not new news to you. And maybe that's why um, I only want to talk about it for a minute. But I do want to clarify something that I've heard a lot of sort of confusion about, and it's this: um, the U, what the U.S. bishops will be voting on is not a policy about what should happen for um, pro-abortion politicians, uh, politicians who are. Um, otherwise acting uh, obstinately um, perseverant in, in, in passing legislation that is contrary to the teachings of the Church, of which there are many, um, or, or, or any other thing. The, the USCCB is not talking about a policy, and the reason for that is because the U.S. Bishops' Conference, and like any Bishops' Conference, can only legislate, make rules, laws, policies, norms, um, on things which the uh, the law of the Church or the Holy See specifically authorizes them to make rules about. And the, the U.S. Bishops' Conference, and no Bishops' Conference, in fact, is authorized to make rules about this. In fact, the rule already exists. Canon 915 of the Code of Canon Law, which says in part that those who obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. The debate is about what that means. What does it mean? And how should it be applied? And should it be applied at all? And is it just? And is it weaponizing the Eucharist? And all the things. You already know what the debate is about because the debate in many Catholic circles is kind of relentless and has been going on since 2004 and all of those things. You already know what the debate is about. What the Bishops' Conference might do, a document from the Bishops' Conference might offer 
a take on the questions of what it means to apply that law or what the law means or offer a theological justification for the existence of the law in the first place, drawing from sources, scriptural, patristic, scholastic, and contemporary to sort of provide a framework in which to think about this question. Because there are a lot of people who just sort of reject out of hand the idea that some people should not be admitted to Holy Communion. Uh, or, and there are, or there are a lot of people who reject out of hand the idea that it, some people should not be admitted to Holy Communion because of their political choices um, or because of this political choice, right? I mean, what this document from the U.S. Bishops' Conference can do is take a tack on explaining those things. Now, do all the bishops agree on kind of what the explanation should be? No, that's what the debate will be about. Um, do all the bishops even agree that there should be a debate, that there should be a document? No, I think probably a, an overwhelming majority of them will agree about that, but some will not agree about that. Um, but it will be a document that is intended to offer an explanation uh, and a framework. The application of the law in question will remain um, a matter that is for the determination of um, the minister of Holy Communion or the diocesan bishop. Uh, and that won't change. The reason I say this is because I think people think there's a vote about like kind of a national policy on what should happen next. In fact, when I think you say I, people think that the no, Washington Post. Well, well I think the think Washington that. Post seem to think that, but I've also heard, I've also heard um, uh, people who work in diocesan chancery say to me in recent days, I'm glad there will be a national policy because it will, then it will make it easier for the bishop to do the right thing without facing pushback because he can sort of put it on national policy. That won't be the case. Um, he, the bishop may be able to point to a document if he wishes, but fundamentally this is the kind of thing that will be and is the responsibility of the person to whom responsibility is given. And, um, and I think that's important to recognize that there's no sort of skirting that. If you are the person to whom responsibility is given for making judgments about the ministry of Holy Communion in your diocese, which is to say, if you're the diocesan bishop, you're the diocesan bishop, and the conference isn't going to bail you out of making a hard decision. Um, if you're the pastor of a parish, you're the pastor of a parish, and you, you already know because your life is a series of hard decisions, the diocese is very, very rarely going to bail you out of making a hard decision. If you're uh, the head of a family, you already know that the parish isn't going to bail you out of making a hard decision. That with, I mean, you know, with uh, with positions of leadership or authority um, come the responsibility of making hard decisions, and that's not going to change. So fundamentally, what's most important in this question about um, the worthiness of various people to receive Holy Communion or admission to Holy Communion for various people is whether bishops who are responsible for these things um, believe what the church says about it, how they understand what the church says about it, and then whether they're going to do something about it or whether they're disinclined to make waves about it. I think those are the questions, the only questions that at the end of the day will matter. I think the Bishop's Conference document is important because it gives a good framework. We'll obviously cover it because it's revelatory about how various people feel about various things. But at the end of the day, the only thing the Bishop's Conference can do is give an explanation or an exhortation on this. That's right. And I think it's a helpful clarification. Okay, wonderful. I appreciate you um, bringing that to our listeners' attention and to my attention while you were talking, I tweeted it out to make it look like I had the thought first. <laughs> are you serious? 100%. Oh, man. So, listeners, you are going to see this tweet of Ed's, like, now, you know, now, and, and probably be thinking, like, boy, that Ed. And um, tomorrow you will know. <laughs> boy. But I'm, I'm, I'm being open and upfront about that it. That Ed. Okay, uh, last thing we need to talk about 
is uh, an investigation that we um, began last week and that we are continuing this week, um, which is to say in the, um, uh, some news that we were reporting about another uh, investigation of a, a bishop in the United States. And in this case, the news that we reported last week is that the Bishop of Knoxville, Tennessee, Bishop Rick Sticka, we reported this after we recorded the podcast, Bishop Rick Sticka um, is likely to be investigated, that reports have been made to him about, uh, to the Vatican through the new reporting system that is developed in the church about questions of um, his governance, uh, particularly with regard to the possibility of uh, inappropriate relationships, not even necessarily kind of um, sexually inappropriate relationships, but just relationships that, that are alleged to have led him to uh, turn a blind eye towards the accountability for priests and seminarians in his diocese or selectively turn a blind eye towards those things and um, and the possibility of other sort of leadership uh, problems in the diocese with regard to his sort of administration and relationship with priests and those kinds of things. We, we, re- we reported last week that, um, the Holy See, that the Holy See, the Congregation for Bishops, has received, I think, 10 complaints um, about um, uh, or around 10 complaints or reports about Bishop Sticka's leadership, and Bishop Sticka said that he's handled things appropriately, that the processes he's alleged to have not handled appropriately, he actually did, that we were going to regret reporting on it because he did everything right. And this week we are reporting on um, some other mistakes that uh, Bishop Sticka is alleged to have made. That's right. Um, there, there seems to be, at least according to a large and growing number of priests in his diocese, a pattern of questionable judgment um, in relation to the acceptance of seminarians uh, for the diocese or the attempts to ordain uh, young men for the diocese after they have been dismissed from seminary for, let's say, aggressive sexual activity, allegedly. Uh, And, I mean, we we don't have official word yet on whether or not uh, of Los Estes' investigation into Bishop Sticker has been approved or formally opened. I suspect we will find out in due course. And, and actually, there are some technical questions about whether Vos Estes Lex Mundi is the thing that would apply to him. He well, may well be subject yeah. to an investigation, even by his metropolitan, but not under the aegis of Vos Estes Lex Mundi. And the reason for that is because it's not clear, you know, there, there have been technical questions about whether the reports themselves, which thus far seem to have alleged... Um, uh, um, potentially a, uh, a disordered relationship with a seminarian um, or potentially impeding an investigation, but not an investigation that pertains to a minor or potentially a vulnerable person might technically fall under the aegis of Vos Estes Lex Mundi or not. There is that, although we do know the complaints were made through the Vos Estes We do know that the complaints were made procedure. through the Vos Estes hotline, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's all. that's all still to follow. And I mean, it's important that that this process is followed. You know, when we talked to people in Rome at the Congregation for Bishops about these complaints, they said, look, don't expect a decision overnight. We've, we've got the mail. We're reading it. We're reading it carefully. This stuff is, is serious, but, you know, the process has to be followed, and that happens in due course. And I think that's that is important and true. And we've talked about um, investigations into U.S. bishops on the podcast before. We've talked about Vosesti's investigations on the podcast before, and one thing that I think we are definitely in agreement on is that an allegation is not proof. An investigation is not a conviction. Nobody should confuse any of those things with the other. That, um, you know, it it may well be that there is, you know... A reasonable no, explanation for all of the things that are alleged against 
the bishop. Exactly. It could well be that. It could be that there is no uh, grounds under the specific provisions of Ocestes uh, to to um, sort of morally impeach the, the Which behavior would be interesting because that could actually lead to a sort of come una madre trial, potentially could lead to a, a trial sans the investigative process delineated specifically by Vosestes. That's only interesting to like a couple of wonks, policy wonks, but that is possible. It is possible because, of course, come una madre has a very wide net for criminalizing Episcopal behavior. Um, it basically means that, I mean, I, I remember when it came out and I, I wrote a thing, gosh, like three jobs ago, um, in another place saying that basically this is this is the ability for the Pope to to try a bishop and penally remove him from office for virtually anything because it criminalizes the cause through either negligence or intention of any person or persons in the diocese that can be moral, physical, or spiritual. So it's, you know, basically if you, if you hurt the people of God in your diocese as bishop, you can be removed from office for that. Um, which as you say, is a very wide net. It could lead to a sort of Vosestes or sorry, a Como in a Madre case whether it's a trial or a penal procedure, I don't know. Um, but but outside of the norms of Vosestes, which is a sort of investigative charter that was passed uh, specifically related to the sexual abuse of uh, vulnerable adults and, and minors uh, after the McCarrick scandal. So there, there could be that sort of interesting disjunction because what we've talked about before a lot is that we've had a lot of these Vosestes investigations. Some of them have led to the removal of bishops from office through resignation, but none of them seem to have landed in a coma in a madre case at least explicitly so if in this instance we were to end up with a sort of reverse situation that would be very interesting indeed mm-hmm. um but but either way the important thing is that you know these things take their course in due course and and you know i i've i certainly in reaction to the the first story we published about bishop sticker last week um i i had a lot of people asking sort of you know well what why 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 report this if we don't know the outcome you know what right. it's like well because you know, when when someone's accused of something very serious, um, the, the, the process is important. Right. And trans- yeah, exactly. The process is important and the transparency in evaluating those accusations is important right. because, That's you right. know what, if you have a credible and transparent process for evaluating them, then an eventual exoneration as much as an eventual conviction holds water and has credibility. Yeah. That, you know, this is important. It's not, it does, to make a big deal out of an accusation and an investigation is not to prejudge the case. On the contrary, making a big deal out of an accusation and an investigation and making sure that the process is followed is what gives credibility to the eventual result either way. That's and this right. is a drum I've been banging for years. I, I agree with all of that. And it's, it's the reason why this announcement, well, our, our, being able to report about um, the fact that these complaints have been received and that they will receive an investigation or are very likely to receive an investigation, um, not that not that that sort of um, makes a conclusion about guilt or innocence, but the the very fact that guilt or innocence is is likely so a set of questions is likely to be sort of ascertained, a visitation is likely to take place, and um, all of that was triggered by. Um, Issues raised by people in the diocese, clerics and laity in the diocese who raised these issues and had a mechanism to do that, that they understood and that they were able to utilize when they had concerns about their diocese. All of that is the reason why I, I think, just to go back to a discussion we had a few weeks ago, we, we can say, okay, what has happened since 2018 is um, is a positive development, set of developments for the church on issues broadly of Episcopal accountability. Why? Because 
we can now see that when people in a diocese have concerns, they're able to understand how to make a report about them. And the Holy See, therefore, has to take them, you know, has to receive them and make a judgment about what to do about them and all of those things. Not because the guy is definitively guilty, but because um, these people who were deeply concerned about, who, who claim at least to have been deeply concerned about the situation in their own diocese, knew what to do. And that's a huge step forward. Um, it is definitely movement. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to concede the earlier argument we had a few weeks ago by calling it progress per se. And, and the reason for it is this. I, I stick to my guns on saying that for it to be progress, you have to see the, the, perp- the progress that would be represented by a good, um, transparent, uh, credible investigative procedure only exists if it's comes to a credible conclusion and that's what has been lacking and so for example in bishop sticker's case the the best of all possible outcomes and again this doesn't prejudge uh you know a sort of finding for or against him with regards to any of the things that have been alleged but the best possible outcome for him is a clear um Mm -hmm. recognizable verdict if you like on the accusations that that's what would benefit him yeah. and the church and specifically local Catholics the most in all of this. And that's what we didn't get in, in the case of Bishop Hepner's resignation. We didn't that's get right. clarity. But you know where else we didn't get it? It was in the case of another Tennessee bishop a few years ago. That's right, Bishop Holly, who bishop was Holly. asked to resign after an apostolic visitation to his diocese, but it was inconclusive for everybody what exactly Bishop Holly was thought to have done. Well, the only thing that seemed apparent um, was that he had lost the... Confidence the, of his presbyterate. Lost the confidence yeah. of his presbyterate. And, you know, there's whether or not um, we we think it would be good or healthy for um, bishops to be able to be removed or forced to resign, as was the case in Bishop Holly's uh, instance, just because the local priests all decide that they don't like the guy and they want him out. Now, <laughs> there are probably some priests who would say that would be a wonderful innovation. There are probably <laughs> some bishops who would say, are you out of your ever-loving mind that completely inverts the entire concept of hierarchy in the church and that's not how we do it and it doesn't it doesn't you know it's it's governance depends upon the consent of the governed to some extent and sure. also you know a, a but it doesn't which, derive from no the no consent no, no. Of the it, government it doesn't in the church no it doesn't it, it absolutely does not but if you think about the ministry of a pastor um, there are a variety of reasons why a pastor can be removed from office, and one of them is that um, yes. if, a, if the bishop judges that a pastor's office has become um, ineffective, uh, then then um, the bishop can initiate a process to remove the even pastor from no office. Even through no fault of his own. Even through no fault of his own, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and if he loses specifically the goodwill and respect of upright members of the Is that delineated community. in law, or is that just sort yeah, of Yeah, that's delineated in law. Hang so on, go to the law. No, 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 I believe you. No, I know you believe, but I mean, you know. Go ahead. To Spin the law. For, to the law. Spin your That's all I had to say was just the, was just simply that that there's an analogy there where where a pastor can be removed because it seems if if he has lost entirely the trust of the people of God and the portion of Indeed. the people well, of God to can, which he's Canon entrusted. seventeen forty J D. When the ministry of any pastor becomes harmful or at least ineffective for any cause, even through no grave personal negligence, the diocese bishop can remove him from the parish. 1741, the causes for which a pastor can be removed legitimately from his parish are especially the following, not mm-hmm. limited to, not but limited especially to, right. the following. Mm-hmm. A manner of acting which brings grave detriment or disturbance to ecclesiastical communion, ineptitude or permanent infirmity of mind or body, which renders the pastor unable to fulfill his functions usefully, Loss of a good reputation among upright and responsible parishioners, or an aversion to their pastor, which it appears will not cease in a brief time. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I mean, here we are back again, and this is something that we have talked about a lot and we've written a fair amount about, which is if you get to a situation where bishops like, for example, Bishop Holly or potentially Bishop Sticka can be made to resign because they have lost the the good opinion of their presbyterate, um, there will be bishops who will say this is outrageous. This is absolutely an inversion of how things are supposed to go. This is not how the hierarchy of the church works or functions. But it again raises the interesting question of, you know, why should there be one rule for bishops and another rule for priests in these things? Because pastors can be and are yanked out of ministry and basically memory hold sometimes for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. on the basis of accusations, which are even subsequently shown to be manifestly false and frivolous. So there is, there is very much this disparity of accountability and treatment under law in the church between priests and bishops. And I think this is another interesting case where we might see from a different direction, um, a, a way in which that might be shifting somewhat. Indeed. You know, and as I was thinking about our discussion of that, I realized that there are um, uh, that Bishop Stick is the bishop of one of the smallest dioceses by Catholic population in the United States. Um, the Diocese of Knoxville, I can't remember quite the number, but the Diocese of Knoxville has a relatively small number of Catholics as compared to nearly every other diocese. And yet, um, for uh, for uh, some, at least some segment of the Catholic population, he is more known than you might expect for someone who is the bishop of... Uh, of such a small place. And the reason for that is because he is a very active user of social media. He has 73,000 Catholics. I just looked it up. Um, He is a very prodigious user of social media. And it sort of occurred to me that um, there is a way in which some bishops who who have, uh, who are prodigious users of social media have a platform that extends far beyond the reaches of their own diocese and that that's an unusual thing and just how interesting it is that people know who bishops are from other parts of the country in a way that they probably wouldn't have otherwise not know their names but just like kind of have a sense of them um because of their because of their prodigious use of social media and and that ed that put in my mind a game i'm sorry that gave me an idea an idea that just sat down in my craw and stayed there i don't even exactly know what a craw is but um so if that image is lewd or something i apologize i think it is it's supposed to be stuck in your craw which yeah right but again i don't know what a craw is i think it's your jaw you know, it's this sort of, you know... Okay, I, well, you don't, People should not sit on your craw, J.D. That is bad. Okay, so at any rate, Ed, I started to think, you know, uh, the, about the way in which people know bishops from social media and how bishops sometimes have a certain disposition, and some bishops are very corporate on social media, but some are not. And that gave me an idea for a game that I have been thinking about now for a couple of hours since I had this idea. And so, Ed, you and I are going to play a game called Bishop or Not Bishop. Okay. And here's how the game works. Uh, I will read you um, a tweet or otherwise a social media posting, and it will be your job to think about the tweet for a moment and make uh, and ascertain. Again, this is derived from the fact that Bishop Sticka is a prodigious and, in my mind, absolutely fascinating user of social media. It will be your job, Ed, to make an, to, to sort of ascertain whether or not I'm reading the tweet of a bishop or not bishop. I I immediately like this game. <laughs> Good. I do too. I hope it. I hope it. I hope it lands. All right, number one, Ed, are you ready to play Bishop or Not Bishop? I am. Okay. I turned on the Oscars for about four minutes. Horrible. I used to enjoy Bob Hope and Johnny Carson. Now it seems there are a bunch of dysfunctional people who have lost all sense of morality, thinking they have the right to tell others how to live. No wonder our nation is dysfunctional. Who cares what they think? Movies are filled with violence, immorality, confusion, and the list goes on. By the way, I decided to read instead and listen to some jazz. Ed Bishop... Or no bishop? Um, well, this is good advice. Uh, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna push my chips hopefully into the middle here and say Bishop JD. Bishop. Ding 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 ding. Ed, you are one for one. Which bishop was it? That was Bishop. Hold on, let me just check here. Let me just see. I forgot to write down in the same place. Oh, that was I'm not sure this is Bishop Rick Sticka Knoxville, <laughs> Tennessee. I see what you did there. That was, that was see what very I cheeky there. of you. Well, I can only get away with that once, so let's move on. Ed, are you ready for Bishop or no Bishop? I am. Whatever happened to people saying, have a good day, as opposed to shut up? <laughs> Manners. Whatever happened, Whatever to, happened saying... to people saying, have a good day, as opposed to shut up? Manners. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Ed Bishop? Or not Bishop? Oh, not Bishop, because I'm pretty sure this is my grandmother. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Not Bishop was a perfectly reasonable uh, guess on this one. I understand why you did it. I don't know if your grandmother has Twitter uh, or not. She but, certainly does not. But this was a Bishop. Okay, no kidding. on to the next one. Yeah, no. No, no, no. Which Bishop was it? Hang on. Oh, hang on. Sorry, I got to look it up. I don't really... I, sorry, I put these in the wrong place, and so I'm not really sure. Hold on. This one was... Oh, Bishop Rick... Stick <laughs> of the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. I see what you did there. Ed, are you ready to play Bishop or No Bishop number yes, three? I'm ready. Just kind of go through my files here. Anyway. This is certainly a strange world. I am perplexed when people speak about the pandemic as a conspiracy. Nope. It is a big, bad, life-threatening virus. I do believe... It is a result of a biological agent that escaped from the lab in Wuhan. Not intentional, but sloppy safeguards. Ed, bishop or no bishop? I can read it again if you need. Well, so he specifically says that he doesn't think it's conspiracy. Is that correct? Right. So we know it's not Strickland. Um, uh, this is certainly a strange world. I am perplexed when people speak about the pandemic as a conspiracy. Nope. It is a big, bad, life-threatening virus. I do believe it is a result of a biological agent that escaped from the lab in Wuhan. Not intentional, but sloppy safeguards. Ed Bishop or no Bishop? I'm, I'm going to say Bishop. Ding, 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 ding. You nailed it. Ed, you are two for three. You're doing, you're doing pretty well. I mean, you're doing, you're doing pretty well there. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next I'm one. I'm going to hazard a guess as to which Bishop this was, J.D. What do you mean? Is it by any chance, was this Bishop Richard Sticker of Knoxville that Hold on, I just got to change. Oh, you know what? You're right. You're right about that, Ed. It is indeed Bishop Richard Sticker of Knoxville. Okay, are you ready to play, uh, Ed, round number four, Bishop or not Bishop? Yes, I am. Shockingly, few people understand that being offended doesn't count as doing something. Ed, Bishop or not Bishop? That's, that's pithy and well said and... Shockingly, few people understand that being offended doesn't count as doing something. I'm going to say not bishop. You sure? Yeah. 100%? No, I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, well, balance I mean, of probability. Moral certitude? I mean, yeah, I want you to have moral certitude here. It, um, yes. This, this doesn't... This, this seems too... Uh, I feel like a bishop would put a natural sort of... Um, punchline at the end of this to sort of you know juxtapose it with a christian mentality so i'm saying no not bishop it's a good observation but i'm saying if it was a bishop it would there there'd be some jesus in there at the end you're gonna be you're gonna be embarrassed oh no it's you i tweeted that that in 2016 ed 
Again, I said it was a good observation. <laughs> I know you really were. You really tripled down on the flattery. Did you know that that was you? No, I had no idea. I, JD, I can't remember what I tweeted <laughs> yesterday. I have no idea. I did, is that really me? Did I really do that? Yeah, you really did that. Um, but that's the only one. That's the only one that I've got of you. Um, so I was right. It wasn't a bishop. It wasn't a bishop. It was you. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I, I just threw that one in for a gag. I could have. I could have put some Jesus in there, holding myself to the same standards to which I would hold our, our shepherds in the church. Are you ready, Ed, for number five? Yes. The Claritin simply isn't working anymore. Uh, that, that was me. I did tweet that. <laughs> yes, indeed you. Well done. I, I remember the day I tweeted that. that, was, that really? Was that was back long, in 2017. I, I was ready to, yeah. I Basically, I was looking at my power drill and, and wondering how far up my nose I could put it before I compromised brain function. Yeah. I know. I remember tweeting that. All right. One more. Yeah, one more. Ed Bishop or not Bishop, the national media should apologize to the people of the United States for no longer serving as unbiased journalists and just admit that they are trying their best to destroy any sense of the independent press in the U.S. They are just an embarrassment. Ed Bishop I did or not, not say Bishop. this. I did not say this. Are you sure? Uh, I'm, yeah, I did, that's, I, I, that's not really angry sure? enough. If I was going to tweet about something like that, I would, I would be angry. I'm going to say Bishop, J.D. This was a bishop. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. Ding, 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 buddy. You got it. Well done, Ed. Dare this I was, ask which bishop? This was Bishop Rick Sticka of the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee. You guys <coughs> can't see this, but Ed just shot uh, some sort of a beverage halfway across the room. He took a sip of a drink at just the wrong moment. How does that feel, Ed? That was a great game, J.D. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Good. I'm glad. I enjoyed that game, too. I do have one more for you. Okay. Apparently, my editor thinks secular irredentism isn't a sufficiently accessible term. Uh, I said that. You did, and I agree. Ed, secular irredentism is not a sufficiently accessible That was not a comment term. about you. No, Jenny. it wasn't, but it's nevertheless true. That was, that was a book I was translating. Um, in fact, it was the, the History of the Church in Iraq, uh, originally written by Fernando Cardinal Filoni, available mm-hmm. on Amazon. And I heartily recommend it. I don't get royalties from what, the translation. What does so secular irritantism mean? Secular irritantism. I was referring, as I recall, to um, the situation, uh, the the political situation in Kurdistan. Oh, that, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the sort of the the Kurdish um, identity of people and place, which goes far beyond the parts of Iraq that it includes, but also you know places like Turkey and everything else. Um, and that it is, you know, the this sort of desire for nationhood and, and, da, and da, 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 da. Well, Ed, I'm sorry. That's all the time we've got for today. You've been playing Bishop or No Bishop. You've been a very great competitor. We'll find out later what you've won. And friends, you have been listening to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. Before we conclude, I would just ask uh, you, if, if I may, uh, to keep in your prayers a, a classmate of mine uh, from the School of Canon Law and a bishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, Bishop Andrei Ravi, who has been hospitalized now for some time uh, with the COVID. And I think it's going to get out of the ICU soon, but nevertheless is in, in need of our prayer. So pray for Bishop Andre Ravi and all, all those who, who, are, who are suffering and who are ill. Uh, I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed, the secular irritantist himself, Condon. Ed, final thoughts? Uh, that, that's, that, that's not my political worldview i i'm not a secular irredentist i i just want to clarify that's okay everybody we'll be back next week